Well, thanks very much for joining us again for our Tech Law 10 podcast. I'm Jonathan Armstrong, and for those of you who missed last week's, the surprise news is I'm Jonathan Armstrong of Cordry now, so I've moved from Dwayne Morris, but I'm still happy to say that uh, we're still doing these podcasts together with Eric, who's still there. I need to apologize slightly for what we call in Europe my man flu, so my uh, voice isn't as, as uh, great as it normally is. But, Eric, you've been thinking about wars against uh, alien entities of a different type, more specifically cyber wars in the Ukraine. Yes, I have, Jonathan. Thank you. And, of course, I'm delighted we're still doing these podcasts together. You know, I've been teaching this international law course at a, at a local university, and so much of the focus is on war and peace. And we talk about, you know, traditional warfare when you're dealing with, you know, you know weapons such as, you know, bombs and bullets and missiles. But there's a whole other type of war that's now available, I suppose, unfortunately. And, you know, frankly, if you're alive on this planet, you're aware there's been quite a bit of turmoil relating to Crimea uh, and its interplay, you know, between Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, and while there have been possible threats of physical force, there also have been reports, Jonathan, of disruption of mobile communications as a result of distributed denial of service, otherwise known as DDoS attacks. Uh, in fact, the Christian Science Monitor reports that 42 cyber attacks hit Ukrainian government websites during Crimea's vote to succeed from Ukraine and join Russia. And on top of that, Jonathan, uh, reportedly there's been some defacement of certain Ukrainian state-run news websites as well as social media outlets with pro-Russian propaganda replacing uh, their original content. And a little bit earlier than that, cyber spies reportedly targeted certain Ukrainian computer systems. So the question is, do these types of activities amount to simply cyber crimes or do they verge into the realm of actual armed conflict? And there's some repercussions if that's the case. Um, to me, in and of themselves, these activities do not appear to constitute armed conflict. Um, however, if these cyber-type events escalate such that they are supporting violent efforts, then they could potentially be deemed part of an armed conflict. And then in that event, uh, the international law of armed, armed conflict would come into play. Uh, and these laws seek to protect persons who are not participating in hostilities, and the law of armed conflict governs the method of warfare between combatants. Uh, the law of armed conflict derives, Jonathan, if you don't know, from the Geneva Conventions, the Hague Conventions, treaties, case law, and customary international law. So there's a lot that could be uh, explored uh, if we're now in that area. Um, of course, the ultimate goal of the law of armed conflict is to limit the destructive effect of warfare and to lessen human suffering. So the question is whether those particular laws, you know, are brought to bear to try to accomplish that goal. So, um, you know, will the law of armed conflict in service of this goal be brought to bear when it comes to the Ukrainian DDoS attacks and related cyber activities? I suppose we'll see, and I'm curious, Jonathan, what thoughts you have on that. I, I think that's a fascinating topic, Eric. I mean, I was in Estonia, I think, just after they had an incident with Russia, seemingly, and, and it's fair to say that, at least anecdotally, Russia has some 
history of this type of behavior. From my recollection when I was over there, I think that they'd toppled a statue of Lenin, and as a result, the um, Estonian parliament that, had, that was the first, I think, to go paperless had its uh, servers uh, attacked and its um, documents removed so that MPs didn't know the order of business and so on. Um, certainly that's my recollection, and that must have been, I guess, about 10, 10 years ago now. So there's clearly many governments, obviously, have invested in their defensive cyber capabilities. And we now know, in part through Edward Snowden's revelations, and I put revelations in, in inverted commas, that um, some nations also have offensive uh, cyber war capabilities as well. And we've seen conflicts previously between countries like China and, um, and uh, who, who was it? China and Vietnam, was it? Over, over spy planes where each of them uh, attacked the other. So I think there's no real surprise that cyber attacks are a necessary, uh, in, in their eyes, part of discontent now. And we clearly do see individuals attached to one side or the other try and take out cyber targets on the other side of the fence. I, I guess what you're saying is, uh, I mean, in most cases, of course, the nation where the combatants come from says that they're lone wolves, if you like. It's guerrilla warfare rather than state-sanctioned warfare. And my suspicion is that that's probably where the treaties have their most um, difficult way of progressing. I mean, if it's a cyber attack, that it's possible that two or three guys together could have drummed up. How do you prove that the state is involved? Just as when the Russian soldiers went into the Ukraine initially, they were debadged. Well, cyber attacks can be debadged as well. You can use a DDoS attack, for example, as, as you know, Rick, and most, of the, most people on the call will know. You can hide the nature of the DDoS attack because usually they'll use mule computers in the middle. So uh, individual A who's mounting the attack will use a compromised computer that might be wholly unrelated to him, computer B, to, to launch the attack on individual C. So it mm. seems to me, to answer your question in a long-winded way, Eric, that I think this is a fascinating topic. My suspicion is that DDoS attacks are quite difficult to trace back to individuals, and they're even more difficult to prove the individual's motivation and who was paying them and who was training them. We can all have our thoughts and our suspicions as to who's behind these attacks. But if it got in front of you know, a tribunal in The Hague, for example, would they actually be able to find somebody's fingerprints on the keyboard that hit send for the DDoS attacks in the same way that they can find evidence on you know, rifles for mass genocide in Chechnya? I, I, I don't know whether that uh, is possible or not, Eric. 
Yeah, I, I think you're raising actually a very interesting and different point than the one that I considered, and that is can you even trace you know, a DDoS or DDoS attack back to a, a nation state? That's obviously a very important point, and I'm glad you raised it. And the other point that I made was even if you can, is the level of disruption caused by a DDoS or DDoS attack such that we would even categorize it as armed conflict then worthy of you know, bringing into implication you know, the laws of the international laws of armed conflict. Um, so for example, if you're simply defacing a certain website content and putting up you know, pro-Russian propaganda, and let's even say that's sponsored by Russian governmental authorities, is that you know, armed conflict? Uh, that was my point. And there's certainly gray areas. I mean, you could certainly conceive of situations where there could be types of attacks on the Internet that actually trigger true physical harm, uh, yeah. where you're actually attacking and disrupting you know, mission-critical systems. What if air traffic control is disrupted and planes start going down or you know, water systems are interfered with such that they're then contaminated? You, know, you can think of a parade of horribles. You know, uh, electric, electrical systems go down and all of a sudden, you know, hospitals aren't being served, or, you know, you can think of many other examples, I'm sure, you know, is that armed conflict? And mm. I think we're going to, hopefully, we're not going to see too much of this, but if we do, uh, these issues will have to be considered and, and ironed out, don't you think? Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I think it opens um, some fascinating envelopes of intellectual debate. <laughs> and that's where we come in. All right, well, this has been our, our weekly Tech Law 10. We're still here at Going Strong. Uh, I'm Eric Sinrod in the San Francisco office of Dwayne Morris, LLP. I'm at ejsinrod at dwaynemorris.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and Jonathan always has the honor of taking it to the very end and bringing us home. Oh, that's kind, Eric. I'm jonathan.armstrong at cordery, C-O-R-D-E-R-Y, compliance.com. We'd love you to join this debate with us on LinkedIn, and you can find us just by those buttons at the top where it says Find Groups. If you put in Tech Law 10, you'll find us there. Obviously, these podcasts and a whole hundred more are available on the Dwayne Morris site at www.techlaw10.com, and you can find them on iTunes as well. And if you've got suggestions for future topics, do let us know. Meantime, have a great week, and we'll speak to you again soon. Bye for now. Thank you.